tuning in to Up Close with Monique McNeil. Today on the show, we're going to talk about whistleblowing. We're going to talk about going up against a system, uh, a system that can be intimidating, a system that is really unspoken about. And we're going to reveal what really happens behind the wall. Uh, we're going to discuss a lot of different things that, that took place. We have on the line with us today, we have Tony Fonte is on the line with us and we're also going to be speaking to author dj vatica he is the author of the green wall he basically you know was courageous enough to come forward um being a correctional officer at this this facility and despite the corruption despite the fear um despite really being up against one of the biggest the largest prison systems in the world he blew that whistle and really you know you, you gotta take a moment and, and purchase this book it's a great read I had the privilege of reading it myself and really in-depth information um, was displayed in that book and you know it's a difficult thing when you're working within an institution where everything is this this big circle or the shield um, to disclose any information that happens and you know oftentimes we see this in police work we see this in a lot of the institutions that govern our society and it's easier to go with the status quo it's easier to look the other way it's easier to ignore a lot of things that are happening um, it's oftentimes intimidating by your by your fellow employees or employers to blow that whistle and to do that and this is what we need more of in 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 this society especially in this day and age with everything going on um there's there's so much corruption you know i'm i'm a big huge believer in transparency and when we use government to write policy to oversee and to ensure the integrity of our institutions are run correctly. This is when we can really believe in our systems, believe in our institutions, and put together really good policy. And it just takes a few apples to really turn a system the other way. Any slight moment or indication that there's any types of corruption always blows into a snowball effect. It could be, you know, the slightest gesture, but that integrity is what turns into something bigger than itself. And a lot of times people are faced with dealing with the fear, dealing with the fear of coming forward, dealing with, you know, the fear of what lies at the end. What's at stake? Your career, your lives coming up against. It's it's normally you against this whole institution. And 99% of the time, they're going to stick together. That's just the way it is. So it really takes somebody courageous enough to say, you know, I'm not going to allow this to happen. I'm going to come forward and I'm going to blow that whistle. And especially when it comes down to putting your own life on the line and risking your career, risking your friends. You know, you, you make a sacrifice when you come forward and when you blow a whistle. And it really can end your career. 
it really can end everything that you've put together, everything that you've worked so hard um, to be a part of. And it, it can all come tumbling down in a blink of an eye because you can't deal with corruption. You don't want to have that on your conscience. And it, it really takes somebody who, you know, is an honest person to really come forward and be courageous enough to stand up and to pull back the mask of, of, of silence and ignorance and corruption and fear. And I am so glad to have with us DJ Vatica on the line with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, DJ, today. Sorry about that, guys. It's just computer glitch, you know. My manager doesn't know how it helped me, you know, so... <laughs> it happens. I'm just glad to have you a part of the show today. I was I was speaking very briefly before you joined us about your book, and I do want to you know put that up on the line. The Green Wall. It's amazing, DJ. You did an amazing job, really illustrating, you know, what you had to go through dur- during that time. What what it was like to to reveal the Green Wall. I mean, th- this this is huge. Th- this was your whole life. This was your whole career. You put on a line. You made that sacrifice. Yes, uh, Monique, I did. And, you know, uh, I took an oath. You know, I took an oath in 1988 to uh, upheld the uh, integrity of that badge I wore and to protect and serve uh, amongst the California Department of Corrections. I didn't take the oath to adhere to the code of silence. And uh, that wasn't all about me. Right. Well, it clearly... It, it wasn't. I mean, you went up against the biggest prison system in the world. Yeah, I did. The world. You know, yeah, the world. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a uh, never ending that I wanted to do. That's not the way I wanted to go out. But you know, I had, tr- I had trust. I had trust in my warden, my warden. You know, I had trust in him and the people I worked for, and, and they basically threw me under the bus. You know, and yeah. uh, I had nowhere to go. And I had, I had one personal good friend that stuck by my side and. His name's Joe Renoso, who's in the book, and we're good friends to this day. And he believed in my story. My parents believed in my story, who are both deceased. And it's my father, my father, that really encouraged me to write this book. He told me on his uh, on his deathbed that, son, we, you need to share this story. You you need to let the world know about what they did to you behind these prison walls. It's not right. Now take us back uh, to 1988. That's when you graduated from the academy, and. Take us back to that time, because well, as I was reading, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people don't really have that firsthand knowledge of really seeing this system of corrections just boost all of a sudden. Like through your writings, you really illustrated very well how when you first um, started at some of the correctional facilities, they were empty. That They were very, very scarce. There wasn't a lot of people there. And by the week, you would see buses come and bring inmates to to the facility. And it to me, it really dawned on me like, wow, this man really witnessed mass incarceration take take place right in front of his eyes during that time. Would... Go ahead. Yeah, Monique, that's correct. I uh, Like I said, I entered the academy in 1988, March of 1988, after I served in the United States Army. And when I graduated the academy, I, I opened up the first maximum shoe prison in California, which is Cork, the state prison. Right. We house about... 2,000 security housing unit inmates who were locked up 24-7. And we had a pop, general population of about 
4,000 inmates on the general population yards. Yes, we got, I opened up that prison. I was one of the first academies to open that prison up and we had a mass, mass movement of uh, inmates from the county jails that were overcrowded and, and other prisons that were overcrowded. They just wanted to move their worst of the worst prisoners at this prison. Charles Manson, he was at this prison. I mean, we had several high Notre inmates. We had all the, the Mexican Mafia shot callers, the Mexican Mafia gang members. And every gang member fashioned in the Department of Corrections was housed there. It's amazing. It, it's just amazing because most people, when they, you know, don't have the privilege of really seeing it really unfold, you know, when they become a guard, they go into the system, it's already you know, overcrowded, but you really saw from 1988 on that trans transformation. And you spoke a lot about, you know, going from a place of uh, rehabilitation that in the 1980s, from the 1950s through the 60s, it was a more focus on rehabilitation and, and less punitive and how that's out the window. Like that doesn't right. even, it didn't even exist. Doesn't even exist. No. I mean, I mean, it, when I was in, you know, the, we, I didn't, we didn't even start wearing the rehabilitation patches on our uniforms until the mid-90s, close to 2000, because all our patches said was the California Department of Corrections. So 10 years later, they added the rehabilitation on our patches, so we had to change patches. And, you know, I mean, we had, and then they took that rehabilitation away in the 2000s after this Department of Corrections ran out of money to support, you know, the, the, that kind of industry for the inmates and the convicts to go and to do something something so they can if they do go to the streets or parole they have something they can look forward to undoing but they they started this program and a couple years later it just folded because the department of corrections cut budgets and and the inmates had nothing to do i i kind of i kind of think that it was more because the money's there You're, you're you're talking about a billion dollar business a billion dollar business annually. So I don't I don't think the money's not there. I, I don't think that they could keep up with the, the supply of inmates. I think that they is such a boost of mass incarceration. There were so many people coming into the facility that I don't think that they could keep up because the money is there. Well, yeah, the, the money's there, but um, yeah, we could, they could keep up. The, the, I mean, the, the prison population when I was in was already overcrowded. I mean, the county jails were over overcrowded. Right. There were inmates already sentenced in the LA County, San Francisco, everywhere in the state of California. And they were just uh, waiting their time to go to prison. But the prison was already overcrowded. They had to make the gyms on the yards. We had gyms that were vacant where inmates could go play basketball. In. They had to make those into uh, housing units for uh, less, less crime inmates. And they had triple stacked their bunks in there, the housing. So the overcrowding was tremendous. You saw a lot of stuff. You you, you really illustrated very well um, in your book a lot of the just the gruesome things that you that you witnessed on a daily basis. And it was a part of you to really want to be a, with the people. You 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 stated in your book that you would like to be in the prison yard. Is that yes? I. Uh... When I entered, you know, like I said, I entered the California then, and then my first duty assignment was corporate. And my first assignment was, I was a level four kitchen officer with my partner. We were in charge to feed all the shoe inmates that, that were locked up. We had an inmate crew at a level three yard that came over and, and prepared these meals for 2,000 inmates. We had to get them fed in an hour and a half. 
and I had a real tight crew for, for years. I loved being in the soup kitchen. I had a great crew. I, they were all mixes, white, blacks, mixed. We all got along. We all programmed. There were inmates on the yard when I'd walk on the yard with my partner. Inmates would run up on top. Hey, Monica, can I have a job? Can I get a job with you? You've got a solid crew, man. You want to work for you. Uh, you know, I said, hey, put your name on the list, you know, and none of my guys wanted to leave the kitchen. They had a great, they, they loved coming to work. Is that, and, and that's part of what I like, how you illustrated very well is by having that humanistic connection that it was sometimes difficult because you couldn't be overly friendly, that there was a line to be drawn, but you, there was something about the, these inmates that you respected and, and appreciated and it kind of normalcy. You talked about right. that normalcy. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, in my, you know, I, I did 16 years. I wanted to go farther, but my 16 years assaulted one time and it was gassed by an inmate that wasn't all there. But most of the convicts and the inmates, they respected me and I respected them. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, you know, I wasn't afraid to come to come work every day because I had that respect. I knew I had that respect, but I never let my guard down. But it was uh, the inmates could trust me. They can come talk to me about anything. You know, a lot of inmates would come up to me and tell me what, what illegal activity was going on in the yards because they didn't want their program shut down. They, they, they come up and tell me what's going on, who's bringing in drugs, who's going to be hit today. And Monica, watch out, there's going to be a riot today, you know. And, and I told my peers so that they knew that was going on and so we can go be in a safe environment. And it's that, it, it's that level of respect that is needed within these institutions. It, it, it really, really is. Like, I'm going to respect you and you're going to respect me and we're going we're gonna to make it work. And that's why, as you could see, why you got along very well you know, why you were respected and why you got along well, you know, with the inmates. But look, take us back to that riot and tell us how the Green Wall or when you realized that the Green Wall existed. And and if you could go into detail to tell us exactly what that is. Sure. After I left the ISU and I was part of the investigative service unit, which is the goon squad for, you know, the prison system where officers don't really look up to us and inmates feared us. When I left that, that unit, I went to the yard. I went to a D yard, the worst yard at Salinas Valley State Prison. More, uh, we had a lot of staff assaults, inmate assaults at the yard. So I left that, that unit in November, and, and then I worked Thanksgiving Day, November 28th, uh, 1998, or November 26th, I think. Anyways, uh, there was no administration there, very few staff. And our upper yard, we had yard like yard open for inmates to come out on the yard. Well, there's a lot of Southern Hispanics that came out on the yard. And it was very unusual. The whites didn't come on the yard. The blacks didn't come on the yard. Asians, they didn't come on the yard that day. They stayed in the housing. Very strange to have just a group of Southern Hispanic inmates come on the yard. And staff were a little leery about that. And uh, one of the staff members were walking the yard and, and told one of the Southern inmates to get on the wall. And, and all, uh, all just everything happened. The, uh, the staff member threw the inmate against the wall. Other Hispanic inmates saw it. And then the Southern Hispanics started attacking staff. And it led into a little mini riot where several staff members were injured, several inmates were injured. And I responded up to the yard and the lieutenant of that day was Lieutenant Lewis, who I worked with at Pelican Bay. And we ended up, he ended up telling me, hey, Monica, handle this crime scene. You know how to do it. It's no problem, sir. So I got the camera and I started photographing the inmates uh, where they were in the prone position on the yard. And then I told Greg Lewis, hey, I need these guys escorted to me. 
into the hobby room so I could photograph these guys prior to being escorted back into their cell so they don't have injuries or whatever. Well, when they did that, some of these guys that were already part of the green wall uh, came into the hobby room and they, uh, I don't i don't want to curse on your radio station, but they said some very obscenities to me. What are you doing, Vodka? Are you an inmate lover? Are you on their side? I said, guys, just bring him in. I'll do my job. You do your job. So I, I got a lot of a uh, lot of uh, grief from these guys. Uh, shortly after that, uh, two or three months later, uh, excuse me, let me back up. These inmates were escorted back to their cells by these Green Wall members, and they were physically abused prior to being put in their cells. And mm-hmm. weapon uh, property were destroyed. Mm-hmm. Shortly after that, a big investigation entailed, and Sacramento came down, and, uh, and then they uh, started interviewing me and, and all that. And that's what they called the Thanksgiving riot because these prison guards would wear turkey pins on their uniforms to indicate that uh, that riot that I was on that yard I was part of the green wall wow so was that riot when so do you think the green wall existed prior to this riot or is that when you became aware that there was something going on that no, that's, why... when, no, that's when it actually started when they hit 1998 before that it, it wasn't there was no such thing as the green wall there and and people talking about it, but that actually actually initiated the Green Wall, and and uh, you know it's just uh, the reason we they call themselves the Green Wall. We wore green jumpsuits in the Department of Corrections. Okay, we wore a full green jumpsuit with yellow patches, and we also wear green pants with khaki shirts. So that's why we, they call themselves the Green Wall. The seven twenty three, the seventh letter of the alphabet is G. The twenty third is W. They okay. actually they actually throw a gang sign that looks like a W. They throw that W on their chest. Some of them even went to tattoo their bodies, the wow. 723 and GW on their bodies. Wow. That's in the book. So was there any specific initiation to, to be a part? Was there any to be a part of this green wall? Was there any tactics that were used to be initiated into this green wall? No, if these guys, this is going to really blow your mind. These guys in the Green Wall were part of the investigative unit, the IA, ISU, who investigate staff and inmates. They were the ones behind this. They had the backing from the warden at that prison. They knew the warden, the warden knew them. The warden told them to put, go put fear and intimidation to these inmates. Nobody's gonna run my yard. As far as uh, initiation, they had to handpick who they wanted in our unit, who they trusted. Mm. They, didn't, they didn't trust me, Monique, because I'm ex-ISU from Salinas, I'm from Calipatria State Prison and Pelican Bay. I yes. came from Pelican Bay to Salinas, where I was ISU. So they didn't know me and they didn't trust me. And I wasn't no part of that group. Right. Right. Now, what was some of the things that would take that they would actually do? I know that you, you touched upon it uh, briefly in your book. Um, uh, witness tampering or um, evidence tampering and, and, and things like that or intimidation. What were some of the other things could you disclose that, that they actually did? They actually uh, would do it. It's like if an inmate was going home or a convict was ready to go home and he was a shot caller of a certain yard and he was ready to come home. These guys on the green wall would know who they were going to go get. So when these group green wall members would come on the yard, Monique, I'm six foot five, 320 pounds. Right. These guys were as big as me and bigger. And they walk on the yard. The inmates would see these guys come on the yard with a green jumpsuit, black hats, and they would stop. And they'd look, and there's something going on. These guys would actually go into a housing unit, go up to the tier, pull an inmate out of the tier, pull him out of the cell, cuff him to the rail, 
and search his uh, cell. If this guy was going home in a week and he's been down for 20 years, they would plant an inmate manufactured weapon in their cell. Now that inmate's looking at second or third strike. He is never going home. Now these guys would do that. And I've got documentation to support that. I also have documentation to support. They would go down to the level one yard, a minimum security yard, where these inmates were just like, two, three months to the house. They, were, they weren't inside the walls or inside the fence. They would go down there just to mess with them, just to go down there and mess with them, tune them up and bring them behind the wall. And, and uh, so some of these inmates would come up to me and say, Officer Bonica, look what they did to me. Look what they did to me. And I, had, I mean, this is crazy. So I had an, oblig- I had an obligation as a peace officer when I saw right. that to, right. report, to report that in which time I did. Wow. Now... I know you didn't disclose that in the book, but any of these inmates who, like you said, were about to go home, they were been down for 20 years. So to me, that's that's basically life. Um, were they ever able to, were they ever exonerated from those charges? It took time. It took a period of time. Um, like I said, I got the full report on everything. And it, it took time. And then, you know, the, after the green, these guys were investigated and they were doing criminal activity and corruption and, and legal illegal acts. And they uh, found out who these inmates were were uh, being uh, abused or more time on their sentence. They eventually released them. And at which time these inmates sued the Department of Corrections for what they did. Good. Good. We need more people like you to really come forward. I mean, what take us what you went through when you actually decided to come forward. Like, that, that must have been such a... a I mean... It sounds like it's inherently a part of you to do the right thing. But well, what take us what take us through what you went through, what you endured to actually pull that whistle and go up against. I mean, it was you against them, essentially. Yes, Monique. I, um, I ended up uh, later in my assignment a year after 1998, 1999. Uh, I went to the in year 2000. I went to the vehicle Sally Port where the vehicles come in inside. And that's why I wanted to stay. I had a great seniority. And, uh, uh, Lieutenant Lewis became the IA lieutenant on ISU after he left the yard and, and all of a sudden he got into that unit and he got to pick his team. Well, some of these Greenwall members were still in the ISU unit and Lewis didn't want those guys in his unit. So Lewis went to the warden at the time and said, hey, the warden, I want these guys out of my unit. They're, they're corrupt. They're, they're, they're criminal acts. These guys are no good. I want them out of my unit. I don't want to be responsible for them. So uh, the warden said, no, Lieutenant Lewis, those guys are going to stay in the unit. They, you, that unit belongs to me. You just handle it, handle it in as best you can. Well, Lewis came down and talked to the vehicle Sally point and said, hey, DJ, I need you to do me a favor. I said, what's going on? Right? And the warden wants you to come up and talk to him about what you know about the Green Wall. I said, okay, no problem. So I went up and saw the warden that day, and that was on a Thursday or Friday. And because they also wanted to come in my office, I came in. He was, hey, do you know anything about these guys who call themselves the Green Wall or that this prison of mine that I, I run? I said, yeah, sir, I know them. I know who they are and what they do. And well, I'm ordering you to, I need you to write a report. I said, well, sir, I work with these guys. Said, well, Officer Bonica, I need a report by Monday. I'm ordering you to write a report and get it on my desk. And I'm thinking, sir, I work with these guys. I work with these guys. I'm in a level four prison. 85% of these guys are preferred. I mean, these guys can, inmates can take me out anytime they want, you know, and I have to work with these guys on a daily basis. So I said, no, nope, I need that report. Bonica, I'm on my desk Monday. So I called a good friend of mine, Joe Reynoso, who's in the book. And he was my squad sergeant and, and all that good friend. He said, DJ, do what I've always told you. Type up this report, stamp it confidential, keep it for yourself. And I did. I turned it into him on Monday. Two months later, I get approached in the vehicle Sallyport by these guys from the Green Wall, from the ISU. 
came down to the vehicle sally port and they threatened me. They, they quoted verbatim what was out of my memorandum so right there the warden threw me under the bus he showed my confidential memorandum to these guys in the green wall i didn't know he was a part of it until later on it's in the book and he read it when he gets in the book it reveals who, who was in charge and, and shortly after that i was moved overnight to another prison i had the oig come down to my house officer inspector general who worked for the governor at that time came to my house that night and wanted to know what's going on and lieutenant lewis got moved to another prison and i was like oh my god i'm here by myself and, and uh, i interviewed with him for four hours two weeks later they came into the prison they swarmed the prison with their vehicles and took out the warden out of his office and isu files everything a big investigation was made at Salinas prison on this group that called themselves the green Wow. And we're, we're going to dig more into that right when we come back. Are you stuck in a dead end job? Ready to have a career you enjoy? Vista College online campus gives you the opportunity to get a degree from a nationally accredited college in some of the most in-demand career fields from the comfort of your own home. Programs are designed for busy adults. Many can be completed in as little as 12 months and associate's degrees can be finished in less than 22 months. Business, healthcare, IT, criminal justice, and more are just a click away. If you have credits from other colleges, they may transfer towards your online degree at Vista College. Taking classes online is perfect for adults trying to balance work, family, and other commitments. It gives you the freedom to design your schedule around your life. Call now to find out how to get started. See if you qualify for financial aid and get a better life. Call now, 800-880-5532. 800-880-5532. Learn more, earn more. Call 800-880-5532. Stated completion dates are based on successful full-time enrollment. Vista College Online Campus is accredited by the Accrediting Commission of Career Schools and Colleges. Do you have $10,000 or more in outstanding federal student loans? You may qualify to have your entire student loan forgiven with one free call. That's right. If you're a teacher, police officer, firefighter, or work for a nonprofit, federal programs are still available to have your entire student loan forgiven. Graduate Service Center wants to give you free information on all the programs that can help. The sooner you can call, the faster you can get relief. Get the maximum loan forgiveness, loan reduction, or consolidation available. Plus, find out in the first free call what you qualify for. A loan forgiveness specialist is standing by to answer all of your questions for free. Stop worrying about student loan payments. If you have $10,000 or more in federal student loans, this information could change your life. Call 800-579-4409. 800-579-4409. Wipe out your federal student loan debt. Find out how. Call 800-579-4409. His life on the line and sacrifice everything. Because when you walked away, I mean, you were a part of this for 16 years, that this was your career. I'm sure you had, this is not the way you plan to end your career. And to walk away from all of that and, and to really know, like, I, I just try to captivize on on that that state of fear the state of shock the isolation you must have felt oh i was uh when i and i, I was living in the area still and, and i i lived in an apartment up there and, and i had lock gates in front of my apartment where in order to get through the gate you'd have to pick up the phone and call it and ring to my phone and and a couple of times these guys knew where i lived they would try to get in the gate and see where i lived at and shortly after that i i moved i, I moved out of there i got out of there and then um, I retained a, a, a good a good lawyer out of Cal, Camarillo, Lanny Tron, who 
who I retained and he took on my case. And then shortly after that, in uh, January 21st, 2004, I had to testify in the state Senate hearings in front of uh, when Governor Schwarzenegger was a governor. And uh, I was uh, subpoenaed up there because two senators were hearing uh, called government oversight hearing against the Department of Corrections. Wanted to know what all this corruption and code of silence was going on. And when I entered the uh, Burton room at the state capitol, flanked uh, by two highway patrol with my bulletproof vest on, Joe Renoso and my lawyer were walking up the stairs. And there was so much media there. There were cameras everywhere. I mean, they... It was, it was unbelievable. And then I got into the courtroom with the auditorium. It was packed. I opened the doors. And there was not a seat around. People were standing on the wall. The wall senators were above. And I went down there and I raised my right hand. And right before I testified, Senator Spear, Jackie Spear, who's now a congresswoman in Washington, D.C., uh, held up the L.A. Times, front page of the L.A. Times, where my story was in. It went, associated, it went all over the world. And, and that's when I talked about the Green Wall and and I, I, I blew him right out of the water. I told everything about the, the director of corrections was there, the secretary of corrections was there, my own union was there. I, I opened up a can of worms, and then shortly after that, Monique, uh, they moved me off the grid. I, I, went, I went off the grid in hiding for six months to a place where nobody could find me, and the only people knew where I was. My, right. mom and, my mom and dad and my partner, Joe Renoso, and my lawyer. Right, right. And let, let, let's take it back to that, because you mentioned very quickly you felt you needed to wear a bulletproof vest. Yes. Yes, I, I definitely did. I mean, Joe Renoso told me, and Lanny Tron said, hey, we need to get you a vest. And, you know, I didn't have a vest. Joe Renoso got me a vest. And, um, no. And, 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 and all of a sudden, Joe said, you need to wear this. And I wore it, you know what I mean? Anytime I was in California, Monique, I, you know, I was scared for my life. Not because, yes. of the in, not because of the inmates. It's the staff. The staff were after me. Right. Were, of know, course. Take me out anytime they want. The warden could have put a hit on me, you know, and I didn't want to die, you know. And and, and uh, after that testify center, I went to a place where you had to go through two lock gates to a back cabin. I think you saw the pictures in the book. I did. The, the cabin and the, and the caterpillar. I, that. I mean, I was 25 miles off the grid. And when I got there, it was real dark and rainy. And, and that night when I woke up the next morning, there was two feet of snow on the ground. And when I walked into the meadow, I looked up, there's Mount Shasta right there. It was gorgeous here. It was pretty. It was quiet. It was, I, I, had, a piece of, I had a peace of mind that nobody's going to be able to find me here. Nobody right. was. And nobody did. Right. But it's the fact that that's what you had to endure. That yes. kind of yes. just. Uh, yes. It was, you know, it's like, a, I mean, it's a career that I wanted to start and I wanted to finish. But I'm not, I'm not for corruption. You know what I mean? I'm not going to stand behind prison guards that do, do illegal criminal activity. I have morals and integrity, man, you know. And, and uh, shortly after that, you know, I, I uh, came out of hiding after six months and we started going to the court stuff. And, you know, the biggest thing that really bothered me a lot is, is when my mom and dad were like, they used to go to Southern California to the beach area. They wanted to see their grandson, my, my boy, my little boy at the time, five years old. You know? He said, Daddy, Daddy, let's go to this fair. We passed by the fair and passed what was going can we go to that fair? He's never been to a fair. Right. So yeah, son, let's go see grandma and grandpa first and then we'll come up and we'll go to the fair. He goes, okay, dad. So we went to the fair that night and had a great time just meeting him. I had my bulletproof vest on. I had my weapon on my hip, you know, and I didn't want to spoil myself. So we went to the fair and on the way out, on the way out of the fair, I, I got ran up on by a, a correctional sergeant who was right. part of the green wall at the fair and threatened to drop, drop the case, vodka, you rat, you snitch, let it go. And my little boy saw that. 
There's no little kids shouldn't see that. He started crying. I got him out of there and got him back up home. And nobody should go through that. Right. And it probably was a reminder of what, you know, that this is still ongoing, that people still, you know, wanted, wanted you dead. I mean, I'm essentially, I'm sure some, some of them did any of, a lot of them lose their careers. I mean. Yeah. After they did a big investigation, the inspector general came in, the IA came in and then what, what this is going to blow your mind right now. We, we were doing deposition testimony and we saved Anthony Lamarck. He was the one we saved him for the last. I sat through these deposition testimony and we were deposing him about two hours in. We had, there's a reporter that came in, uh, Stephen James. He followed my story ever since it started. He got into the, the room and he wanted to take some pictures of Mr. Lamarck. Well, Mr. Lamarck saw it. He got up, he had a cane, you know, like a uh, like electric thing around his waist because his back was hurt. He was out on medical. He got up and started swinging his cane at the, the photographer in front of the attorney general. And the attorney general left the room. And shortly after that, the deposition was done. And uh, Mr. Mike Lord, Lord told the attorney general, you can't, we're not done. We still got two hours left to Mr. Uh, Lamarck to pose. We want to get to the bottom of it. And she said, we're done. So that day, my lawyer and the attorney general went in front of the uh, the judge who was overseeing my, my hearing, my court. And the judge told Mary Kane Simon, you need to produce Mr. Lamarck next Friday, Miss, Miss, Miss Mary Kane Simon. Mr. Tron and Mr. Lodica got two more hours left. The attorney general looked at the judge and said, I can't do that, Your Honor. The judge goes, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Lamarck, just, him and his wife just flew out of country. They left and went to France. They left. They're, they're not coming back until this is resolved. And they actually flew out at night. They didn't want no part of this. Because you know why, Monique? We were getting to him. We were saving the best for the last. And that's right. what you do. I went after him. He's the one who set me up. And like I said, I just sit here and just think, like I said, typically you hear of stories of... I. I've never heard a story with this much intensity before with somebody who has been on the other side of the wall, who actually wore the badge, wore, took the oath, and was in a, such a position of power, really. And to really want to choose integrity and morale over the status quo is just so amazing. I, I, I hope that you really you know, think about all that you've done and really essentially how you breaking that, that silence, breaking that, that code of, of silence and coming forward with your story has really changed so much. And it really sets the president. It, it really, you know, sets the president for anyone who is out there who, you know, is a witness to, crimes that are happening, corruption that is happening, to really encourage them to come forward, to blow that whistle that you you don't have to be alone and that there are other people out there. There's there's other warriors. I, I think of you as you a know, warrior. You, you know, Monique, real quick, that man right there, Tony Vontel, right? he met me five years ago. He's never been in the prison, never seen the prison. He believes in me. And we're gonna get this told. We're gonna get this story told. You, you sure are. And in in the moment, I when you reached out to me, I just was like, you know, aside from just this just being really an amazing and amazing story, you are such an amazing person, DJ. You you, I I really you empower me to want to do more 
and empower me to go further. And it's people like you that our society needs. We need you within our institutions. And like I said, I I am so honored that you're on my show today. And I look forward to working with you um, when we come together or te- or you know collaborate some type of board or to create policy. You're just such an amazing person. And I just really personally, I, I can't wait to get personally get your signature. I, I need your autograph in my book. <laughs> I need your autograph. I can't wait to meet you. Um, like but Tony, just to get Tony, your... Like, like Tony, he's, he's, you know, like I met him five years ago, like I said, and, and you know, he's, and I, when I live in Arizona, you know, the Dodgers have spring training out here and I was, I worked that complex and, and I, and I can never forget this. Uh, his daughter was working there that day and, she said, hey, can you go pick my mom and dad? I was sure, I'll pick him up on a golf cart. So I got him on the golf cart, take him down to the clubhouse where the Dodgers are at. And he goes, hey, I, Tony goes, I've seen you here before. I said, yeah. I said, what did you used to do? I said, well, I was a, a retired correctional officer at California. He goes, oh, you were? He goes, yeah. I said, you ever heard of the Green Wall? He goes, yeah. I said, we've been following that story. Keep, Channel 5 has been following that. You know, we've been following that for years. And it went underground. He goes, I said, well, you're looking at the person who exposed the corruption. He goes, what? Ever since then, we've been together. I mean, we're, we're, I, I got goosebumps. He got goosebumps. And, and we're, we're, we, you know, like I said, the, the, there's a story right This This story's in development right now for a feature film, you know. And, um, right. And so, what's next with that? You know, I, I can't really talk about it, you know. And oh, Tony, wow. let, 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 hey, Monique, if we got a minute, let Tony talk about that. <laughs> the, the whole thing is, you know, we, we, we're, what we're doing is, we are at, we feel, the foundation of prison reform. What we're trying to do is build a, a solid foundation. We're getting DJ out there to speak. You have him on your show. I would like for DJ to be a model uh, to build upon in the prison systems yes. where if you break the code of silence, if you stop that at the base, Everything moves forward from there. You start at a base of morality, as you mentioned, uh, at a base of goodness. And prisons aren't going away. Prisons are a way of life. The question is, do we house people in prisons to punish or do we house people in prisons to rehabilitate? And I think telling DJ's story starts from a good, solid base of uh, everyone trying to do the best we can with the situation we have, which is prison. And look at DJ, look at his story. There's, if, if everyone was, had DJ's ethics, yes. uh, I don't think there would be the logical problem. Basically, it goes way beyond that with mental health, etc. But starting from the base of telling the story of breaking the code of silence, we start there. And I think that's a, a positive way to go. I, and and I, I think you're right about that. I think you're absolutely right about that. That is exactly what we need. And you would be uh, an amazing person to tell your story. As soon as you, like I said, reached out to me, I was like, this is amazing because not only is it just an amazing story, but I passionately have dedicated my whole educational career uh, behind public policy and, and specifically mass incarceration and, and, you know, things are happening within our juvenile justice system. And, you know, um, there's no, book, there's no yeah, there's Monique, there's no book out there. There's no book like this even compared to what I did in the United States. I've there's never no, seen it. No. There's, I've there's, never seen You know, there's books been written, you know, with like guys that, like journalists that go into prison as a correctional officer and seen this stuff. 
they seen the basic stuff. I, I saw criminal activity. Well, that's what I think about all the time. Like I, I did my internship uh, for my undergraduate degree at a uh, correctional facility. Um, and I found out right away that it wasn't for me because the culture was just, I'm too much of a, you know, bubbly. How are you? It just, I didn't fit that, that culture at all. It, it really is a culture. And I was just like, this isn't for me. I, and, and then I just re- imagine being at the level where you are dedicating your life. I mean, 16 years of your life in a field, you know, that you really believe that you wanted to do good. In, you know, in I, I, my, my goal was to go 30 years. That's how we right. can retire at 30 years. I mean, we can retire at 20, but my goal is to go 30. Right. It From reading your book, there was a sense of pride. Total. There was a sense of pride that you had when you put that badge on. And in, in a sense of ethical morality, that, that I, that's what I got from, from the readings. Um, and so just like Tony had said, we need to really, really have your face and your story out there. And any way that I can help to do that, I'm definitely going to do that. I, well, we, we've applied for the TED Talk. We've, uh, we're uh, building more content into DJ's YouTube channel. Uh, eventually, what we've been talking about is somehow getting some type of speaker circuit going where we have uh, folks like yourself or folks uh, that go and do short, like, you know, 20-minute talks at uh, different communities around the nation. This is this is where we're the platform we're building on, and it all comes from DJ not being allowed to assist his parents at their time of their, you know, death. And the parents speaking to DJ saying, you tell your story, you make sure your story. And, and honestly, that advice to DJ is the reason he gets emotional when he talks about this stuff. The reason he is, it, it's going to happen because he is on a mission, if you know what, uh, what I mean. Yes, yes, he is on a mission. And, he's- uh, and I see, Monique, I see Carlos up there. Is Carlos a part of your, your team? Or, I mean, I've never had somebody come on a Zoom call other than you, me, and, and so. <laughs> Car- Carlos is the, the engineer making all the magic happen behind the scenes. You'll be able to um, see it from a different standpoint after, but he's, he does amazing work and... Um, yeah, he's he's the magical guy, the engineer that makes it all beautiful. Well, one of the <laughs> other groups, what one of the other groups that we're uh, involved with has a person I believe he had done 25 years incarcerated that's doing what Carlos is doing now and we are working with them. These are the, the types of organizations that DJ and I have been, you know, getting involved with and such and I think that's why DJ was wondering Oh, okay. Well, definitely. If you know when you're looking forward, look at I'm I'm cross promotion to the fullest degree here. Well, you know that's another. That's <laughs> Carlos another is the group. best to go. <laughs> you know the, the other thing is too is you know I mean I know Mickey Mill, uh, Jay Z, they're very heavily on uh, re- prison reform and reform alliance and all that. And you know I mean what you did today, Monique, and sharing my story with you and me on this. It's one of the most powerful uh, interviews I've ever had that, you know, that actually got into depth of this stuff and, you know, reaching out to them. And if we could share this story with them, they they would be like, what? 
know, I mean, this is powerful. I don't know if they ever got my book or whatever, but I don't know. I'm pretty sure they might have heard my story, but they really didn't need to know, you know, what prison guards do to incarcerate. Everybody needs to know because we need more of this. This is this is going to be a new 2021. I, I really feel it's it's I feel the energy. It's a whole new year of reform. And I think we have a lot of people in positions of power that really want to make change that that they really we need it at every single level within our our government and this is the the forefront mass incarceration um the whole criminal justice needs to be reformed and it starts with conversations like this to change that narrative well you know one thing i want to say monique this is this is really i want to say is not all prison guards not all correctional officers not all law enforcement are bad Of course it's just not. that that selective few that make it hard on others. That selective few make it hard on others to go to job, go to work every day, and come home safe. Those other prison uh, officials, guards, law enforcement, whoever that badge that are corrupt, those are the ones that should be held accountable. That and and thus incarcerated. Correct. They, they should be put behind the wall. That's correct. Themselves and and, and that's we, and just to speak about that right now, I think I sent you a link. Uh, there was two prison officers in California that were just indicted uh, uh, just uh, last week from Folsom State Prison that ended up abusing a, a, an inmate, a 65-year-old inmate, who ended up dying two days later. They just indicted both of them. And I, I hope they get the full max uh, set prison sentence to both of them. That's right. That's right. No one is above the law. And right. I think that when we really illustrate that and hold that up to its creep, that no matter... You break the law and you 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 pay. It doesn't matter in your position of power that we need more transparency and we need more oversight and we need more people like you and Tony and myself that really wants to make change and, and beneficial policy and ensure that we have integrity. We need integrity, you know. But um, we got about five minutes left. I want you to tell the people where they can get this book, The Green Wall, author DJ Vatica. Tell them where you can get this book. How can, can they reach it, you? You can get it on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. Um, you can get there. And, you know, the books reach the UK. I mean, I've done podcasts on the UK and Australia and the Philippines. And people in the UK are, are finding this book in and, the and UK and, and Australia, the Philippines. And you can get it through uh, Universal. I self-published the book, so it's not in, like, it's not into the big book, Barnes and Nobles and, you know, that stuff. You have to actually get it online. But like I said, Monique, you get that book to me. I'll sign it. Or if we ever meet in person one day, I'll sign oh, we it will. and get it back to you. We will. We'll be on some big advisory board. Trust me. I'm speaking into existence. I think it's great. I mean, you what you've done with your life and your career and your achievements and with your education, uh, we, we could probably work great as a team to, to share this and, and to get it out there and, and to let the public know, hey, this is coming from a correctional officer who works behind the prison walls in the largest prison system in the nation. There's nobody bigger than the California Department of Corrections. In the probably world. in the world. Probably in the, in the world. world. In the world. I mean, wow. when I started the prison system, Monique, I, I went in in 1988. The 16th prison was built when I got when I retired on medical in 2006. The 36th prison was built. Mm-hmm. There was over 190,000 inmates are incarcerated inside the prison system in California. And right. It kept up. Yeah. So we're, we're the biggest. And just, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on my show today 
and to tell your story and keep telling your story in any way, like I said, that I can get your story out there, your book out there to draw attention to really what's going on. And um, I, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward yeah. to anything you have it in the in the future. Prison reform is, is huge right now. I mean, it's a hot topic and uh, we need to make changes, not just in California. We need to make changes all through the United States on on, on in this because of, it actually starts behind the walls. We have to get rid of the rogue prison guards or rogue people that make it hard on the incarcerated program in their life. Exactly. And we need more people like you to do the right thing. And that's what it's about. Doing the right thing, standing up, breaking the wall of silence, breaking that that whole shield situation and, and coming forward. And we, we, we really, really thank you. I thank you. And I'm sure there's people out there who are going to watch this and be like, wow, that, that, that guy is great. He's amazing. Keep doing great work. And once again, I want to thank you all for tuning in with me on Up Close with Monique McNeil. Until next time, God bless and take care.